Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 15th episode of What's Wrong with the Podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Samuel Stein. Samuel Stein is a geography PhD candidate at the CUNY Graduate Center. His work focuses on the politics of urban planning with an emphasis on housing, labor, real estate, and gentrification in New York City. In 2019, Versa published his first book, Capital City, Gentrification, and the Real Estate State. His popular writing on New York City planning politics has been published in such venues as The Guardian, City Limits, and New Politics. In addition to studying, teaching, and writing about urban geography, he worked as a researcher, organizer, and planner on numerous New York City Union campaigns, tenant mobilizations, and public policy initiatives. He is a participant in various tenant and community groups fighting gentrification and displacement in New York City and beyond. Samuel, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So please do tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and how you get to writing Capital City. Sure. So this book came out um, almost exactly a year ago now. Um, I am currently finishing a PhD program at the City University of New York in geography, um, mm-hmm. which is a, an, an entirely separate project from the book. So work that I hope will be coming out um, also in the near future. Um, my background is in New York City labor, tenant, and planning politics. Um, I worked mm-hmm. for a few years as a researcher for a couple different New York City labor unions. Um, I also worked as a tenant organizer for the organization um, Tenants and Neighbors. Um, I got a, a master's degree in urban planning in between those two uh, at Hunter College and really focused on. Uh, the question of gentrification and the role of the city um, in both producing and mitigating it. Um, And then uh, after being a tenant organizer, I uh, taught for a little bit and then started studying again um, at CUNY. And throughout all of this, I've been writing uh, for both scholarly and popular audiences and also participating as as a resident and also as sort of like a planning you know, unpaid consultant to social movements that are um, fighting for or against um, the the kinds of projects that we're seeing around the city now. Yeah. And um, I mean, we really find it fascinating that, you know, there are so many uh, experts and researchers around such topics. And yet sometimes those, uh, I guess, research or articles or publications can be left in at such a high academic level. So there is really a gap between like sort of people understand and see some trends and the problems in a city, but we don't necessarily understand the underlying reasons or sometimes the big picture. And it's so important and valuable, I think, to find books like Capital City, where um, it is a very complicated and sophisticated issue and problem, yet it's presented so well and it's a great read in general. So, um, yeah, first of all, thank you for that. (laughs) Second of all, um, can can you sort of like walk us through what is, what are the, what is the main problem you're trying to describe uh, in this book and then some underlying reasons of such problem? Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about gentrification in cities. Um, and that's a topic that has been um, talked about, written about, um, acted on for a very long time and in a lot of different places. 
uh, and yet it doesn't seem to go away. And so there were a few different um, factors that I was interested in looking at and um, explaining. And I think more than anything else, I wanted to think about what does it mean to do public urban planning in a privately controlled land market? So in places where most of the land uh, is owned by private individuals or corporate entities who get to accrue the, the value um, that is added to their holdings um, mm -hmm. when public agencies, when government, when social actors uh, make a place nicer, when um, transit is improved, when public spaces are expanded, when um, we create greater density to have more walkable and enjoyable uh, living spaces, there are people who get very rich off of these things. And it's mm -hmm. not just an incidental um, happenstance, it's become a major driver of urban policy. And so when we talk about the causes of gentrification, oftentimes we talk about a problem of supply and demand in housing, which is real, um, especially if we think about the supply of the kind of housing that is being demanded, there's a great mismatch. We talk about cultural changes where maybe um, a new generation prefers living in cities over living in sub suburbs. That's real too. But I wanted to shift the focus onto a third factor, which I think is under discussed in all this, which is the fact that a majority of the world's capital is now invested in land and in real estate, and not just any land in real estate, but specifically urban real estate, and within that, specifically housing. So uh, there, there's a global um, pool of money that is being invested in the prospect that our cities will continue to get more and more expensive, which puts an, a tremendous amount of pressure onto local actors uh, and specifically urban planners who are kind of managing the levers of urban growth and change at a slower pace. So that was the, the kind of phenomenon that I wanted to look at. How has this concentration of capital into real estate change the meaning of and the goals of urban planning in cities like New York City? Yeah, and we I guess we see it very vividly in New York City, right? <laughs> Looking at all the uh, gentrification that has happened over time and seeing the neighborhoods are like really unrecognizable at this point. And which is tough, right? Because as you said, we do want to see the cities huh. develop. We want to see have them dense. Uh, it makes them more exciting. And we want to see new developments, new parks. But that does, that does not necessarily mean that it's, you know, inclusive of all or promotes the diversity that the city was, I guess, once known for, maybe still is. It's really uh, hard to say. Um, but how do you see... Like, uh, I, I understand there is a big education component where uh, if uh, residents of a city understand such changes and um, the risk of such changes in the city's culture and just overall uh, feel that we all enjoy, um, how else do you think, like, something like this can be communicated more um, and without sounding very political right like because i think when 
we like start talking about these, uh, you know, policies or things that's being done, different parties can like blame each other. Oh, that's just a political campaign, but it's actually reality. Like, how do you think we get around that and just show people some facts that this is not working or going well? Yeah, it seems like um, there's definitely a popular understanding that this is not working and going well. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, from everything from pop culture uh, example to just conversation among friends in New York City, we can all see the direction that things are going. And I think even in the city's political culture, especially in the last year, there's been a real change in um, the way that uh, the the kinds of changes that are being sold to the city are received by its residents. Um, and sometimes that can take a reactionary form where people are mm -hmm. against it simply because it's being put to them. But I really don't think that that's what's happening most of the time. I think people understand that the way the city is changing is not benefiting them and the people that they consider to be like them, whether that's their immediate neighbors or people of the same uh, class and racial background or immigrants who are like them when they came to this city, they see that if the city continues to go in the direction it's going, there's not going to be room for them. So I really do think right. that there's a popular understanding around that. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that one way that we can you know, make this more common, and as you said, I don't think it's not political, but not sound as political, um, is a framework that I, I quoted a, an activist from Crown Heights, Donna Mossman, um, saying, that's what we're fighting for. They're beautifying the neighborhood. I've been here for 36 years. I want to enjoy that also. That's what she said. Mm -hmm. is, you know, things are happening and, and I don't want to be stuck in the past. I don't want to be stuck in bad situations, but I understand that with this, you know, her word is, is beautifying, with this beautification, is coming an increase in cost that's going to price out me and the people who I consider to be like me. And so I don't yeah. think that concept is hard for people to grasp, that we want change. We do not want the status quo, but we want a different kind of change than we've been offered for a long time now. Yeah. I'm just curious because, like, even though we understand the problem and we see where things are going and we don't like it and we're afraid of it and all of us are sort of experiencing the same thing so there's a lot of communication between just like the city dwellers um it i also feel like it is a problem similar to like let's say health insurance premiums like we know they're very high and we do not like it and we don't see that as a sustainable system it's like obviously it's not working but we don't necessarily understand the underlying reasons of why it's so high or how to even tackle it. Like there are like few companies who are trying to get around it and just educate people more. And I find this issue sort of similar in the sense that like it is so obvious because we're living it, right? Like there is a there is definitely change and we see it and it's not necessarily for the better always. But at the same time, we don't know how to address it or what to do about it, like, except for maybe complaining. <laughs> um, and so that's what I'm curious about. Like, how do you think we can sort of, I guess, be more educated on the underlying reasons and like overall how this entire uh, system is working as a, almost like similar to how you explain in your book and sort of almost be like mini activists in terms of demanding more or demanding a better change because we also, 
now have a better grasp on really how things are working and how this can change maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope my book is helpful towards that pursuit. And I think there are a few others that have done the same. Um, But what's most exciting for me is not just, you know, writing a book and then putting it out to the world, but seeing reading groups pop up around it. So there are Mm. organizations, um, the Democratic Socialists of America is one, Um, some neighborhood-based groups in various parts of the city have organized reading groups of this book, and maybe people like it and maybe they don't, and that's great, that's fine. But then the next phase is, okay, so now we understand this, so what do we do? And there have been, you know, concrete actions that have come out of that. Um, And I think more and more people getting organized with their neighbors, with people of common cause is going to be the way that this changes. Um, We do need a kind of um, mental change around the way that we see and understand this stuff, but we also have to do it collectively in order to demand action. Um, And I think last year's fight around um, the rent stabilization and rent control laws being renewed in New York State was a pretty great example of this, uh, Mm. where groups have been basically fighting on that issue for a very long time. When I was a tenant organizer, I was uh, leading a, a coalition of organizations that were fighting to get rid of the loopholes that allowed landlords to raise rents in rent-stabilized apartments more than we thought they should have. Um, but we didn't have a great deal of success in it. And so a combination of factors that included, I think, a change in mentality about what was wrong and what was possible, um, which led to electoral mobilizing to get rid of some of the more problematic Uh, Senate members, replace them with people more friendly to their interests, and then a statewide organizing platform, the Upstate Downstate Housing Alliance, that said, we're not going to look at rent-stabilized housing in isolation. We're going to see it in connection to public housing, to homelessness, to foreclosure, to mobile homes, and we're going to fight for a comprehensive change. I think that kind of scale of diagnosing the problem, taking multiple levels of action, is is the kind of way we're going to move forward. I I love that the book became like a vessel to have uh, workshops, you know, and like scaled workshops on its own. It's I, it really is. I mean, this is like one of the reasons why we do this is just like ideating between like different disciplines and backgrounds and, you know, having a conversation uh, around a problem with like, various peoples is just really seems to be the way to go it and um i'm so glad the book sort of became the um channel for that um and i guess like also to the point where like there is a feeling or sometimes or there's a perception or maybe because we're just very busy people like if something stay like is in the end dependent on the government or some sort of policy um like there it for people in the industry sometimes or just public audience it could there it could be an almost excuse in the sense of like well i mean that's the policy so or that's the government like not really um doing something about it but while still realizing the um i guess problems and frustration around it so uh it's great that you know different communication channels like a book can actually sort of encourage conversation so suddenly you're not like an activist or like you know lobbying for things but still like you don't shy away from something if it 
just relies on regulations or government or policy. Um, and, you know, and it's sort of like, I guess, um, scales it outside from like academic environments or think tanks or just, you know, incubators, but like just a broader audience discussing things. And I think like one example uh, of, of this, like us thinking of this in the past was, I guess, a great example also is the Highline, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, I mean, Highline is a beautiful project. It's a great park. It, uh, it really is. It, I mean, it's the best. Uh, one of the best uses that like old train tracks could have had however because there was lack of policy around it um to see how that change could have impacted that area uh there is like there is a certain crowd who sort of blames highline itself for the gentrification of the overall neighborhood right because it tends to like tie into political um, people just don't want to sort of address that side and they're just like, oh, like Highline is a bad project. Mm -hmm. It's like totally changed the uh, fabric of that entire neighborhood. Whereas if there was smart policy to follow to make sure there was balance in the development that was allowed around it and not just become a showroom for high-end development, uh, then we wouldn't have seen the same case, right? And I would love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, I'd say two things. The first is it's a great example of this problem of we want nice things, but then we don't want um, that to turn into the reason why we can't afford to live in the place anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of an extreme example, but there are many others where people want people want better transit. That's a great, you know, very common one. Um, but there's a real uh, link between expanding transit networks and raising rents unless there's a policy intervention. Um, to change that. And then the second thing is, though, I, I do think people are right to some extent in saying there's a, a relationship between the high line and gentrification that's not just nice things make things more expensive, but that there was, uh, this was part of the plan for some of the people who supported the high line. The point of it was to raise mm. real estate values for some. And those some had, you know, the ear of the mayor and other uh, key um, elected officials who saw that as a net gain. You know, the, the point was, was to raise property values in a part of Chelsea that was not experiencing gentrification at the same scale as the eastern part of the neighborhood. And so while mm. we might say that was a problem and a lack of policy, uh, it may have also been the policy. So sometimes the lack of protection is the point. Uh, so it is intentional that it like, so it was designed that way, actually. It's not like there was lack of policy afterwards. It was designed to be that way. I think the Highline, like a lot of projects, it's not like everyone involved with it had that in mind. Um, but there was a key and very powerful block of people that shepherded it through the political system who were entirely uh, hoping that that would be the, the outcome. Hmm. It's so, it's, it's so fascinating because I remember like when I uh, moved to New York 10 years ago and I was like, wow, like there are such amazing buildings with great public plazas. This is quality development. Uh, what a, a, a planning uh, perspective to be conscious of people's needs and da, da, da. like I was impressed. And then uh, several years later and I got into real estate and became more knowledgeable. Uh, I did realize that, oh, well, if you do incorporate a public plaza, you get a floor area bonus and therefore if you like therefore the developer makes more money 
And so that's, it's in the regulation. So that's why it was done. So it suddenly becomes less interesting, like, oh, they're not actually uh, designed for the best interests of the public. It was just like a money maker for the developer. And then several years more into it, you start seeing, well, these are public plazas, but I'm not necessarily seeing any diversity within these public plazas. So it's like a very like homogeneous, like if there is retail, it's the same retail. If there's like, I don't know, uh, so other amenities, it's like designed for a certain audience. So it is like, even as a like like resident here for many, many years, like noticing for me was very much over time. And I I wonder, was there like a moment for you where you were like, oh, something's really, really not right when you were first in the city? Yeah, maybe that's when you become a New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just like cynical about everything. Yeah, uh, I mean, the most extreme moment for me was getting evicted uh, from my apartment in, uh, let's see, this was 2007. Um, and at that point, you know, I think a lot of people's relationship to the city that they live in is is a love-hate thing where they they love the city, but they hate the direction it's going in, or they love what it used to be, but they don't like it now, or maybe they like it now, but they hate what they used to be. There's always yeah. some combination. And, and I was having, you know, those feelings. Um, and then suddenly I was just jarred from my home. Um, and there's a long story there, but the short version is, I was subletting my apartment without the permission of the landlord and it was a rent stabilized apartment and that is illegal. Mm. That's yeah. that's true. However, the reason you didn't tell the, the Did you know going in though? Oh yeah, I knew. There was there, we yeah. had good reason not to tell the landlord because he was in jail for trying to to murder the downstairs neighbor and burn down the building. Oh my god. And and he served 7 years in jail for this uh during which time he passed over the building to, I believe, his brother to manage. Mm. So the guy who tries to murder the tenant and burn down the building essentially still held on to his property rights, but I didn't have access to my home because I didn't get the murderer's permission, the attempted murder. Oh <laughs> so that was the moment that I learned like both the extent and the limits of our rent protections in the city and like just how strong... Um, the the power of private property is even in this city which has some of the strongest tenant protections of anywhere in the country yeah it's like so you did mention you know uh the lack of policy is some sometimes like embedded in the projects like do you did have you looked into like is has this been the case since i don't know like seven like 60s, 70s, or it became more and more that? Yeah, it's definitely um, a thing that's always been there, but evolves. Um, and in the, the first chapter of my book, I, I give a longer history of urban planning in the U.S. with New York City as the primary example that shows um, kind of that, that real estate interests have always been involved. And that's no secret to anybody who knows urban history. Um, who owns the land is always quite important. However, there was a there was a more diversified economy within the city, and specifically there was a stronger industrial and manufacturing sector, which put in a very different set of demands on city government around urban planning. And part of my argument with the whole book is that um, it's not just that there's a lot of capital in real estate now, it's also that 
um, the industrial sector has largely left the urban cores of many U.S. cities. It, we didn't deindustrialize; mm -hmm. we just sort of moved it around. But there's no longer mm -hmm. a strong, um, well-financed voice of capital that wants low land values, for example, because you know industrial uh, uses thrive when land is cheap. They can make stuff on land without you know losing too much in the acquisition. Similarly, they might want rents to be lower because as rents go up, workers start to demand higher wages. And so they could see that as in their interest to have public housing or rent control. Um, we have a, a deindustrialization in this city that starts after World War II and then really accelerates um, in the 70s. Uh, we lost half a million industrial jobs in New York City, and that completely reshaped the political economy of the place. And I think that's where you start to see um, real estate having an even greater influence um, in urban policy in general and in planning in particular. Yeah. And, you know, our studio is based in Brooklyn Navy Yard, which is like one of the last pieces of land that still feels very industrial, actually. But even us, we are seeing and it's a city owned uh, like land, too. So right. it's not, and it's run by a nonprofit. So it's actually like one of the maybe best case scenarios. But still, um, you know, even though like we're seeing a few uh, things similar themes around there like even though there are not the navy is not there anymore and there is not necessarily like big safety issues it's still a like, gated community mm -hmm. really and also you know we which is uh, like a double-edged sword because as a tenant there like we and like we enjoy now that we have coffee shops around right like four years ago there was zero retail and we would just like order online so I do like that there is ferry now to the Navy Yard or there there is some retail around and there is a supermarket. So those things as a resident, I very much enjoy. But I'm also very much aware that those things only came there because of a massive building by, that was built for WeWork, which is, right. I guess, sort of like the the most infamous landlord or like the real like tenant uh, these days, especially. So how do you balance that right like and yeah I, we've seen you know some manufacturing industrial businesses leaving navy yard over the past couple of years but then still brooklyn navy yard uh, De development corporation being very keen on trying to keep uh, some manufacturers there and bring in more because they don't want to lose their manufacturing and is zoned to be manufacturing anyway um and so they're also trying to balance. Like there is like all this balance act happening, which at one point it you kind of I guess lose one side, and it's just a spiral from there on. Mm -hmm. But I would love to hear your uh, thoughts on like how how do you balance that really? Like because it's like as a tenant there, I enjoy the change, but I also see the risks that is built right across our building. Yeah, I mean I think. The Navy Yard is is a better example than most, yeah. Because it has this nonprofit management and city ownership, uh, and maybe it was a mistake to build that WeWork tower. But um, in general, they are acting to preserve the manufacturing character while adding these amenities that make life better for workers of all sorts uh, mm -hmm. who are there. And because it's city owned and nonprofit managed, I think they have a, a much greater deal of control over how far that transition is going to go and what are its limits. 
as opposed to something like Industry City, which I believe the the um, owner there is actually the former manager of the Brooklyn Navy Yards, but they're trying they're they're doing a much quicker transition out of manufacturing mm. space uh, and yeah. pursuing a rezoning that would allow them to go much further. And in a lot of the city, we see industrial zones and manufacturing areas kind of protected in some areas very intensively, but then in other mm -hmm. city, in other parts, treated as kind of zones of obsolescence. Even though they're continuing to to do important work um, for the city and the region as a whole, um, they're seen yeah. as places that could be put to a, the highest and best use, and that is in this time and place never understood to be manufacturing. Um, and it is true that we have a housing crisis. And so if you're looking to develop more housing places, you can look to these industrial places. But if we get rid of all our manufacturing um, spaces in the city, we're going to have a tremendous loss, not only for the productive things that those places do, but also for their impact on the city's political culture and overall land market and kind of economic ecology. I want to touch upon like one more thing uh, about the book that you have uh, mentioned. You did say, I wanted to write about planning, not planners, mm -hmm. and then you changed that. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, um, my my initial pitch to my, uh, my publisher was to write a book about urban planning and why planning is so hard in a plan private land market. And their response was like, they, they liked the subject, but um, they said, if you talk about planning, uh, it's as if no one does it. It's almost like a natural effect. Whereas if you talk about <laughs> planners, then we have a sense of who these people are and we can understand them as conflicted between what they personally want to accomplish, uh, how the things that they do are translated into a market setting, and what the pressures on them are from both uh, their employers who are political appointees and by private interests who earn, who own the land that they're trying to regulate. So I think they were really right. If you, if you focus on planners, you see that it's not just um, a kind of ephemeral system. It's real people doing real work who really want it to be different. Um, I come out of uh, a planning education. A lot of my friends are practicing urban planners. Nobody I know wants things to be the way that they are. Um, they got right. into this profession in order to do good for the city, and often they feel like um, they can do good, but it's it's in a sort of um, backhanded way or, or like quiet way, or when they do really good things, it gets kind of translated through this private land market into a bunch of bad things that they never would have wanted. And mm. so, you know, they want change as much as the people in the neighborhoods who are suffering the, the kind of ill consequences of gentrification want change too. Yeah, and the, the other, this is actually great and it really ties back to how this book really helps communicate a status uh, that is really hard to understand in general and why it's happening. And you're so right when you start talking about planners, it's also like just people out there who are trying to do their jobs, but they're also part of a system and it is as hard, if not more than many other jobs that we're doing. So I think it's, um, I guess in that sense, I, I can go on to the advice piece that we usually do. And which is like, if like, let's say there are people frustrated around this issue, 
and they want to go into business and do something about it, or they want to raise an issue to an existing organization and just want to be more active taking role against like gentrification in the city. What would be your advice for them? I guess the main advice is not to act in isolation. Um, that there's a lot about our lives in this time and place that is very isolated, very alienated, and very atomized. And sometimes we can lionize that. We imagine the one person um, who can sort of lead the way to, to fix things. Um, sometimes Jane Jacobs is kind of picked up as that figure. But Jane Jacobs was an organizer. She organized her neighbors to take action against city plans that would have imperiled um, their neighborhood, their livelihoods, their mm. space. And so I think that's where we need to be going is um, look around you and see who else is affected by the same things that you're concerned about, um, who has the power to do something about it, and how can you collectively build your power um, to, to force a change. I think that that's how we're going to see this whole thing uh, start to change. In the final chapter of my book, I especially talk about the latent power of the tenant movement, um, where all of us live in separate apartments, or maybe we have roommates, but like we, we live apart from one another, but we're all kind of joined by the same set of problems and uh, have an incredible amount of collective power that is sometimes expressed, but usually only sporadically. And so mm -hmm. developing a more collective and more organized vision rather than seeing ourselves as the individuals who can change things um, either at a massive scale or, or even just thinking about, well, I can change things in my own life. Uh, we need to be thinking bigger than that. So, so true. And such a good reminder to just be more collaborative and just expose ourselves to others and discuss things. Uh, well, thank you so much, Samuel. This was such a pleasure. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I enjoyed. And that was Samuel Stein, author of Capital City. Amazing talk. Well, as New Yorkers, it's always amazing to hear like other New Yorkers like real estate pains, right? Like it's yeah. Everybody has their own very painful story. I don't know if you had one, but I'm sure you did. I I, I did, especially coming in as an international student. I. <laughs> had m many troubles trying to get a lease in this city so oh right they like yeah. ask for like the entire year's like money or things like that or brokers yeah. ask for like ridiculous money yeah yeah um yeah but I my can't believe he got evicted <laughs> i think everyone has a story not similar to that because that one is crazy like i cannot imagine a murderous landlord um <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think everyone has a story here, right? And that's when you start to see that New York is more than just a pretty place and a very diverse city. Yeah. Um, you see, like, the underbelly and the capitalist layer of it. Yeah, because, like, if you think about it, like, there are lands owned by, like, people in jail or you know <laughs> foreclosed buildings because like something happened and then somebody else just comes in and tries to take advantage of that and build and it's hard discussion because like if you look at it as a for-profit company's motive 
they're like, well, I'm here to make money. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the one thing we are seeing though, and we had this conversation in the, one of the last episodes with, I think Maggie from women's organization, right? Like we're seeing only seeking profit is not necessarily a sustainable model. Yeah. Right. Like it's not necessarily valid in the long term, which is also both interesting and worrying about like, so what does that entail for New York's future where everything is so profit driven? I think it's all very complex and the whole idea of gentrification um, isn't black and white because as we've said with um, uh, Seth Lowe and even with Samuel that we want to make our neighborhoods better. We want improvements like restaurants and waterfronts and extended transit and we want parks and we want all of these things. But why does that have to mean that people get displaced and moved away from where they used to live or have lived their entire lives because it's more expensive now? So yeah. it's a very complicated issue and it's not just down to people being forced from their homes it's it's a it's it has many layers i think yeah and this happens so so fast if you think about it like i mean 10 years ago brooklyn was not what it is today i can't <laughs> imagine what, what it was like 20 years ago probably you couldn't even sell a building in williamsburg and now like williamsburg outprices manhattan and it's like in in the last like 50 years like they just like reamped this like and made this money-making machine and it only makes sense that this is only feasible through a bigger power right like and yeah. you don't think about like the back end of it necessarily but he was also mentioning like well there is lack of policy so people are building or the intent was that there should be no policy right and like yeah, it all goes hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, the whole term gentrification was invented in 1963 by a wow. British sociologist. Her name was um, Ruth Glass, and she used it to describe events taking place in neighborhoods near the center of London. Um, and she wrote that gentrification occurs when working class quarters have been invaded by the middle class until all or most of the working class occupiers are displaced and the whole social character of the district is changed. Hmm. I mean, it's exactly what gentrification is now. And in, it's happening where like wealthier residents flow into one low income, often minority neighborhoods. And long-time yeah. re residents are priced out. And I I feel like there should be a better solution to this. Yeah, because, like, there, I, there are several things. Well, change is inevitable. Neighborhoods, yeah. they're always going to change. That doesn't necessarily always mean. Like, in some neighborhoods, you can see that happening, maybe. But when it starts happening across all neighborhoods in, like, like entire Manhattan, right? Insane. Like yeah. when, when you start seeing that it's then you're like, well, why does, okay, things will change always, but why does it always lead to the same route? Like it could change for yeah. good. Like it can become more diverse. I think I keep, I, I keep thinking about what's a good example of gentrification in my mind. And I think about um, the financial district in lower Manhattan and I 
Cause, but I also think there weren't enough residents there to be dipl- displaced when the whole like revamping of that area came about. And now so many um, skyscrapers are being built in that area and people are moving there. But it wasn't like that before. And I would say that's gentrification for better, maybe. Well, it w- it's weird because... Lower Manhattan was never, you're right, like it was never residential, right? It was like the commercial center, uh, tourist destination. And what really triggered the residential conversion was that, like, at least one of them is like after Sandy, um, Mm -hmm. so many businesses got, like, couldn't enter their buildings. They couldn't enter their offices. I, I was working on Wall Street at the time. I had to work from home for two weeks because we couldn't access our buildings. And some offices did that for months and months. So what either the developers saw or the neighborhood saw is that, well, this is not sustainable for commercial businesses because they're just so traumatized by this. So we should convert to residential. Like I, I think I saw like the, uh, like the biggest change in, towards residential like within the past 10 years mm-hmm. almost since sandy so i don't know if that was like really gentrification or just like a more of let's change function and use yeah renovation for the entire neighborhood for a different use so that the feel is different i yeah. guess maybe but at the same time it was never accessible to all i guess like with any uh it's it's hard because like if politics is involved and it always is and if the biggest when some of the biggest players are real estate developers so if they're the biggest players there is a going to be a lot of lobbying from this real estate force towards politics mm-hmm. and so it is inevitable that all like most of the decisions are going to be in favor of the developers and this is seen in repeat in any big developing city and that's why it always results in gentrification i mean the concept started at london because london is also a big example of this and new york and i don't know san francisco and um maybe like not as much yet but we can see that in the future in Seattle I don't know then it goes back to what Samuel Stein said about Jane Jacobs and how she harnessed the power of the collective and um, Jane Jacobs for those of you who don't know is she was an urbanist and activist whose writings championed a fresh community-based approach to city building and the built environment And she had no formal training as a planner, but her book, The Death and Life of the Great American City, was published in 1961 and introduced groundbreaking ideas about cities and what seems now like common sense for generations of architects and planners and politicians and activists. And she wrote about sidewalks and parks and self-organization, and she really, really promoted higher density in cities. She wanted to promote local economies and mixed uses in neighborhoods. And she was a firm believer in the in the importance of local residents having an input on how their neighborhoods develop. And I think this is 
something that's very much missing from the current landscape of real estate and development. And I think that's primarily the whole point of um, Samuel Stein's book. Yeah. I mean, how could, let's say there is more awareness around it. I guess like it goes again, as there are books like that, this out there that helps people see the overall big picture of what's going on gives yeah. the people more the voice to basically show their frustration in the right way not just like go, going out and protesting but really coming together organizing and insisting on change in the in the right like either legal or yeah. um i don't know formal ways that people should be doing it like i I think, I guess, like, gener it depends on the generations. Like, I feel like, well, millennials, maybe we're not as passive. Like, we're actually a little bit more vocal about our opinions. But I feel like Gen Z and onwards, I have higher hopes for those generations, actually. I mean, look at Greta Thunberg and all the things yeah. she's done. She, she's Time Magazine's Person of the Year in 2019. She's also a champion of the importance of the collective and the importance of empowering people to, to have a voice. I mean, she created a global attitudinal shift in how people see and, and respond to climate change and respond to politicians talking about climate change. Um, yeah. she, she demands more and she makes people demand more. And I think that's what's missing. Maybe people are doing it less and there's not really a champion or a a person that is pushing this in the built environment. Yeah. And it can't happen alone. She just like sets a yeah. role model for people to be more vocal and active. And, but the only real solutions come about when people do unite. I think like that's the like more common theme running theme that we see and probably experience ourselves too. We as city dwellers are frustrated with multiple things but it's such bigger than us that we just like accept and go about our lives usually. Yeah. Right. Some things like you do immediately intervene if it's in your hands and it really bothers you. But like in the big picture for the big picture and for the, this big changes, like you can't really do anything on your own. So you don't, even if you are aware you move on with your life or maybe yeah. choose not to live here, but still like, we don't actively contribute to change necessarily. I think it's very interesting that he talked about how um, workshops and reading groups have formed around. Yeah. And I actually went, I, I found a few on Facebook and I found different um, workshops. Um, he has a lot of um, speaking events also where he talks about his book and probably reads chapters from it around and there's even like some Facebook groups and they're not all in New York and I think it's very interesting that people are forming around a book to to learn and then yeah advocate for themselves yeah I think it's also fascinating that it's basically a book to tell people how to take ownership of your own city like it's a how to unite 101 type of book which is really like impossible to achieve without understanding the systemic problem and really doing a deeper dive and diagnose what the underlying reasons are and it's so crucial to have 
such wealth of research and knowledge being transcribed in an accessible way. So it didn't stay in academia as an academic research only, yeah. but it became a vessel to really people come together, workshop, ideate, and hopefully unite and act on it. I wonder if it goes back to the fact about the quote from the Gotham Center for New York City History, and they had mm. interviewed him after the book was first published, and he said that he had wanted to write about planning and not planners, but then the, his publishers told him that maybe he should think about it from the planner's side, and maybe that would make it more grounded in humans and in people, and maybe that would... Um, make a complicated problem less complicated yeah and it just makes it more human like more relatable i guess yeah this book does like pose complicated ideas in uncomplicated language which is very good because it's usually inaccessible to people and now it c can be a little bit more accessible like the understanding that your rights and the, the tools to understand how to transform your neighborhood and your city are more in your hands now so true and i think like this we even see this in like corporate level or uh educational level where if you do not necessarily utilize uh an accessible um language or maybe there are a lot of terminologies but you somehow do not con communicate that in a more understandable way like you can't even encourage or allow organizational shifts like how are you going to change a city right so yeah. it is yeah I, it, it is very very valuable I feel like i can bring everything always back to climate change and um <laughs> ideas around cl like cl climate change was very in intangible until it became that a six, 15, 16 year old girl was like missing school and not wanting to go to school because she was afraid about the future of the planet. And that made it more human. And yeah, now it's more human. So true. Yeah. Because climate change on its own is like, a, okay, it's two words. What does that mean? And there's so much jargon and people talk about emissions and CO2 and it's nothing like a, a layman who doesn't study climate science would know about. Yeah, exactly. It's a very good first step for people to learn and be educated about the problems is by reading his book. It's a very quick read, about 200 pages, very easy to get through. Yeah, we encourage everyone to do so. Yes, let us develop our collective knowledge and fight the system. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Tune in next week when we sit down with Katie Wyatt. Katie is an accomplished musician, executive, and innovator in social change through music. In 2016, she became the first executive director of El Sistema USA, a free music education program originally founded in Venezuela for young children from highly impoverished backgrounds. For more information on our events and podcasts, visit us at what's wrong with that XYZ.